Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's podcast. This week, we are continuing our series on what it means to minister to the Lord. We look biblically at the history of temples and of priests all throughout the Bible and what it means in the Jewish context to minister to the Lord. And it's my hope and prayer that through listening to this, that you would step into a greater revelation and appreciation for the crazy reality that we have a personal relationship with God, something that was beyond belief for thousands of years, but we now have access to through the blood of Jesus. Love you guys. Hope you're blessed. Tonight, I want to talk about what it means to be uh, priests unto the Lord and what it means to be a, a holy priesthood before the Lord. And so I think when we talk about the priesthood of all believers or the priesthood that we have now been called into as followers of Jesus, the most popular verse that people typically go to is 1 Peter 2.9, right? It says that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, which you could just chew on this verse like the rest of your life. You're a, you're a chosen people. You are a chosen people. You are part of a chosen people. You have been chosen you are a royal priesthood. I mean, we could just, we could sit on any of these for forever. A holy nation. You are a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And so as we're talking about ministering to the Lord, when we look at that phrase, the first uh, encounters we have of it is the priests in the Old Testament. The priests that were set aside to spend their days ministering to the Lord. And now we today are called priests. But when Peter is talking about we are now priests, when he's saying that and he's writing that in First Peter, he's speaking to a, an audience that would totally understand it in a, in a different way, a completely different way than us. And so I want to look at this um, from this lens. I really believe that as Christians that we, we all have a primary identity, and we all have a primary calling. And I think that for all of us as Christians, all of us, our primary identity is as sons and daughters of God, right? We are now sons and daughters. Now, it says, I mean, Scripture says that we are all sorts of new stuff, but our primary identity is sons and daughters of God. It means that we have now been born again. Anyone who has said yes to Jesus, it means that you have been born again. It means that you have a new heart. You no longer have a heart that is deceitful to the core. You have a heart that is new, that is holy, that is righteous, that naturally wants the things of God. Do we believe that? Okay, it's a core value that we have. We don't spend a whole lot of time. We haven't yet on Thursday nights, but we will. Identity and who we are is, uh, is such a core value for, I know Matt, Jeff, and I, big time, um, the idea that, that we are born again. We're no longer sinners, but we are now saints. Um, and I want, I want to hit this home just a little bit because it, it's really important when we talk about our primary calling, then our primary identity flows into our primary calling. And so as sons and daughters of God, Jesus said that you have to be born again. Paul says that the old is gone, the new has come, Right? And the best analogy that the Bible gives is that of adoption. And so when you would adopt someone in Roman culture, it's the same as today. What happens when you adopt someone? They take on your name and they actually go back to your birth certificate and they rewrite history. They rewrite your name. So if Bailey and I were to travel across the world and we were to pick up uh, you know, Clay Jr. in Malaysia or wherever it is, that would be brutal if we called him that, but whatever it is, 
brought him back to the United States, the first thing that they would do is they would go back to his birth certificate and say, he was born Clay Jr. Orender. A new identity. Now, just because he is now my son and he's living in my house and he has my last name does not mean he's going to immediately act like me. In fact, he is still going to act like an orphan for a while. And especially the longer that he's been an orphan, the more lies and orphan mentalities he's built up in his life, right? So we may get him back to his house. He may still have a fear. You know, at the orphanage he was at, maybe he didn't have enough food. He didn't have enough resources. Maybe he's, you know, five or six years old. Maybe we bring him back to our house. He is my son. He has my last name. His birth certificate says it. His identity has been changed. And yet he's still acting like an orphan and stealing food off the table and not sharing well because he still has a belief that he is an orphan, that has been ingrained inside of him, right? Does that make him an orphan? It doesn't make him an orphan, right? And in the same way, I think we can get caught up and say, man, just because we have lies that we believe, right? Because every single sin comes out of a lie we either believe about ourselves or about God. <clears throat> and just because we have lies that we believe does not mean that the core of who we are is, is still evil, is still deceitful. One of the primary things that I've had to overcome in looking at identity is getting over the, the lie, the great American lie that we are what we do, that what we do defines who we really are, that it reveals who we really are. It's not true as Christians at all. What we do, it reveals not who we are, but it reveals what we really believe. It reveals what we believe about ourselves. It reveals what we believe about God. But we've been made new. We've been made righteous. We are now sons and daughters. We are saints instead of sinners. And we are holy and blameless before the Lord because of the blood of Jesus. And now we're learning to live like it. That's good news. Okay, so our identity flows into our primary calling. All of us are sons and daughters of God. All of us, our primary calling in life is to be priests unto the Lord. To be priests unto the Lord. And so our identity then qualifies us for our calling. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But all throughout scripture, when we talk about the priesthood or priests, priests are always paired with temples. And temples all throughout scripture, they look, they look different, they are spread out, and there's so many varieties of temples. But all temples are dwelling places of God. That's essentially what a temple is. It's a dwelling place. It's a place that God has said, I am going to dwell here, and there's going to be interaction and connection between God and man in this place, right? We think about that's what a temple is. It's a place of relationship and connection with God that has been chosen by God. And so a priest is one who ministers to God and stewards God's resting place. So all throughout scripture, we see priests are charged with taking care of the temple. God selects a place and says, hey, I wanna dwell here and I'm assigning a special group of people to then minister to me in this place, to take care of my resting place. And so the primary activity of a priest is to minister to God, to, you could say, meet God's needs, although he has no needs, right? To minister to God and to steward his resting place. A priest, secondly, then ministers to people from a place of connection from God, with God. So number one, a priest ministers to God and stewards God's resting place. And secondly, a priest ministers to people from a place of connection with God. So get this, if you hear one sentence I say tonight, listen to this one long, long uh, run-on sentence. From the beginning, it has always been God's plan 
that man stewarding the dwelling place of God would result in the nourishment and flourishing of the earth. From the beginning, it's always been God's plan that man stewarding the dwelling place of God would result in the nourishment and flourishing of the earth. And we're gonna work that out through scripture. So the first temple, looking back through scripture, the first temple that we see and the first priest that we see, the first temple that we see is the Garden of Eden. And the first priest that we see is Adam. So think about it. The Garden of Eden, God creates the earth and he puts a garden in the center and said, this is where my presence will be encountered. And here is one man who is given the job to till the earth and to work it, to steward his presence there and to walk with God in the cool of the day. All right? So let's do, let's do this. Let's pull out our Bibles and let's look at this. I'm going to use my phone tonight. Forgive me. Does anybody have their real Bible with them? We got here? We got here? Oh, we got three. All right. We got three people and a bunch of heathens over here. All right. Genesis 2, 10. So I'm a little glued to my notes tonight because I'm learning all of this kind of as we go. So I learned a lot this week as I was doing this research. So Genesis 2, 10 talks about Eden. So God has created the earth and he's describing Eden then. And it says a river, and remember this, this is important for as we go. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. Then it goes on to name the four rivers. First one is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of the Euphrates. Then in verse 15, this is then the priest's job. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. All right, so God is saying, here is my dwelling place, the Garden of Eden, and from the Garden of Eden flows Life. We see this imagery all throughout scripture. It says that the, the rivers flow out of the dwelling place of God and cause, what does it say? It says gold is formed. It says bdellium and onyx stone is formed. And all the areas where the river flows into prosper, right? So then it's Adam's job to steward the resting place of God. And then from the resting place of God, life flows out of. This is the picture of Eden. So obviously, we really messed that up. Adam and Eve break the connection. They break man's ability to be able to be in this resting place, right? Because God is holy. Man sins. All of a sudden, God and man cannot have that connection. Man gets thrown out of the Garden of Eden. People no longer have access to communion with God. A holy God does not have communion with the sinfulness of man. So then we fast forward. God promises to Abraham, and he says, I will create a family line out of you. And this is years and years and years after Adam. He says, I'm going to restart this. I'm going to create a family line out of you that will be a kingdom of priests through which the entire world will be blessed, which is the same call to Adam, right? The same call of saying, if you steward 
my presence, my dwelling place. If you be a priest unto me, be fruitful and multiply, the entire world will be blessed. He gives the same promise to Abraham. And so the Israelites go into slavery. <laughs> Sometimes the Lord promises something and then you go into the opposite for 400 years. And then you come out the other side and the Lord is still faithful. Exodus 19, let's go to Exodus 19. So this is then the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt and God has not forgotten his promise. He's not forgotten his plan. Oh shoot, I wrote down this thing wrong. I wrote down Exodus 19.56 and there's only 25 verses in, uh, in Exodus. But what God is saying is that Israel will now be a kingdom of priests is what God says. He's calling out the Israelites who have been slaves for 40 years, 40 years, I'm sorry, 400 years. 400 years they've been, sla been slaves. There's nothing about them that qualifies them for priesthood be before the Lord. And yet he says, I am calling you out to be a nation of priests before me. And then in Numbers 18.7, we see that priests are given the right to guard the priesthood. So let's jump over to Numbers 18.7. We're gonna jump over all over the place. Numbers 18.7. God gives this. I think this is important because this is laying a baseline for everything else. God says to the descendants of Aaron, and he says, you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil, and you shall serve. Okay, you shall guard the priesthood and you shall serve. Those words guard and serve are almost exactly the same words that God gave to Adam when said, you shall work and protect the garden. So what God is saying, he's just, he's restarting again. I almost see God like, like this isn't, this isn't the case. Like he's never, I don't wanna say he's slow to be vulnerable. He's, ne he's never slow to be vulnerable, that's true. But it's almost like the Lord is like, all right, I'm gonna give my heart again, right? I'm going to dwell with man in the Garden of Eden and then with the people of Israel, he's like, all right, I'm gonna do it again. I'm gonna dwell with man again. I'm gonna dwell in this tabernacle and I am stewarding people, I am, recruiting people to steward my presence. So in Exodus 25, we see that God gives the recipe for the tabernacle and more specifically the Ark of the Covenant. And so Exodus 25, God talks to Moses and says, put cherubim right above the Ark of the Covenant and I will meet with you right above the Ark of the Covenant. All right, and so this, the Ark of the Covenant is the New Eden. It's where the priests meet with God and it's where God communicates to people. He says to Moses, and this will be the place that I will share with you all the commandments that I have for Israel, right? And priests are specifically important in this because priests were the go-between between people and God. And so there was needed a, an intercessor right in between that would go between sinful people and a holy God. And there were incredibly detailed rituals and cleansings that priests had to go into, all just to be in God's presence. And two really quick points just about the priesthood for that early tabernacle. So the tabernacle is able to move around and the priests who are Aaron's descendants, they're the Levites, two different things is priests, number one, were meant to be the example to the rest of the Israelites of what living lives dependent on God looks like. So I was reading through the Old Testament earlier this year, 
And just reading through the sacrifices over and over and over again, how there's blood sacrifices, there's uh, atonement sacrifices, there's continual sacrifices of things that are incredibly valuable to people. I think Curry and I, when we were, we were reading through Exodus and Leviticus and all of this, in Jan- it was January, right? And it just blew me away of the things that they are burning up on the altar are not just like frivolous things that they have extra. Back in those days, like animals and the, the wheat that they would burn, that they would offer for sacrifices were the currency. They were the currency of the day. So essentially, like today, it would be like taking money. It would be like taking your savings. It would be taking your money. And instead of tithing it, you would just go burn it on an altar for the Lord. And they are practical things. They're things that you can feed your family with. Like if you think about a, a lamb, it's, it's going to bring you money. It's worth something. It actually will feed your family. When God is asking for sacrifice, he's not just asking for something on the side. What he's saying is the main source of the way that you survive and your ability to provide for yourself, I want you to lay that on the altar. And sometimes we miss that today because we're thinking like, oh, they have some farm animals. Like, that's a fun hobby. But, but that actually is their currency. It's the way that they maintain their livelihood. And so sacrifices were the giving up of things that would meet practical needs. They were laying down your own ability to meet your own needs. It did not make sense. Secondly, is priests themselves were not allowed to work their own fields. They weren't allowed to bring in their own income which is really interesting because they were completely reliant on God and the sacrifices, the giving, the tithes of the community in order to survive. This, I don't think that this is a precedent for every Christian now who's a priest needs to not work. I think that's ridiculous, obviously. But I do think it means that our needs are meant to be met as we prioritize ministering to God first. First and foremost, I think it's the same concept. Just as priests were not allowed to till and have their own fields because God says, I am your inheritance, he says the same thing to us today and says, if you seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added to you. He said through David, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's the same concept. It's the, as we are in this place of ministering to the Lord, and both corporately and personally of looking at our lives and saying, God, how can I worship you? How can I honor you? And we place that first and foremost. It is his promise to meet our needs in every season. And as a priest, we have the example to model that to the world. And it many times will not make sense. It will not make sense. Okay. So God dwells in Eden. It's the first temple. Adam is the first priest. Then God dwells in a tabernacle, specifically the Ark of the Covenant. It follows the Israelites around. And as they go into the promised land, then it's, uh, it's set down at Gibeon. And priests offer sacrifices there. And then David comes around. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, talking about how David had this crazy master plan of he knew the heart of God and he offered God not only sacrifices, but he also set up worship and prayer 24 hours. And we know that, God, or that David had a revelation of what was happening in heaven 
we, we see that David set up 24 elders, 24 worship leaders for 24 hours. And we see in Revelation that there's 24 elders around the throne worshiping all the time. Obviously, there's many times in the Psalms that David is prophesying about Jesus, prophesying about things to come. David had a revelation from God that he, that he received. I don't even know for some of that stuff if he knew he was receiving things about the future. Many times with prophecy in the Old Testament, the person is just like talking about their own experience. And then God's like, yeah, actually, that's a prophecy too. <laughs> that's also, it's multidimensional. Okay. So something that David really wanted to do was to build God a temple. And God said, no, it will be your son, but let's turn to 1 Kings 6. David says, how can I live in this beautiful home of cedar while you are in a tent? And God's like, I never asked for a home, but that really means a lot to me. So your son shall build it. And so David leaves Solomon all of these incredibly detailed plans for the temple. And what we see is that David caught a glimpse once again of God's original intention. Because what we see is in 1 Kings 6, it describes all about King Solomon building the temple. And then in verse 32, and in other places, but we'll go specifically to verse 32, he says this, he covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim on the palm trees. Then you scroll down and you go down to, he carved the cherubim and palm trees in verse 35 with palm trees and open flowers. And he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the carved work. Over and over and over again, what it says is he carved palm trees and flowers all over the temple, all over the inside. What is that modeling? It's a garden. What he's doing is he's recreating the garden. He is designing the garden. The plans that David handed down to Solomon recreate the original resting place of God. Also, the temple opened to the east, which is what we see. I skipped over that, but Eden, when they're kicked out of Eden, we see that the gate into Eden is from the east and that the rivers run to the east. So the temple is built as a replica of the original garden. And in the temple, the whole building of the temple, there was such an awareness of, of the separation between God and man, of the inability for man in their own power to have access to God. There were outer courts, there were inner courts, there was a holy section, and then there was a holy, holies, a holy of holies in the very center. And it was only accessible by the high priest when they had gone through all their ritual cleansing, which took days, and only accessible on certain days could you actually be in the resting place of God. Check this out, 1 Kings 8. So two chapters, Solomon builds it. 1 Kings 8, verse 6. And so they build the temple, they build the temple, and God is not in the temple, right? It's just four walls, so people are able to work in there just fine. But then it says, then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. Skip down to verse 10, and it says, when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. And so 
It was just a house. It was just a building until the ark was put in there and then the glory of the Lord filled the temple so much that the priests could not even be in there. It's called the Shekinah glory of God. And so even going forward, for example, the, the high priest would go in on the day of atonement, one of the few days that they could go in the Holy of Holies. And they would, they would offer a blood sacrifice to God. They would kill a lamb outside and then they would bring the blood in before the, before the Lord as a, a sin offering for the people and saying, I'm giving a life for the life of the people, for the forgiveness of sins. And when they would go in there, they literally would tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest so that if the high priest died in there, so that if they did their, their cleansing wrong, if they you know, had some secret sin and God killed them in the moment, they weren't seen as holy, then at least they could pull him out because nobody else could go in there without dying. There was such a reverence for the holiness of God. You think about, we talked about it, Uriah a couple weeks ago, who was one of David's mighty men that helped carry the ark, but they did it in the wrong way. It was on the cart, and then he reaches out, he just touches the side of the ark, and he dies on the spot, right? So think about being Peter when Jesus introduces himself and does the miracle of fish, the miraculous catch, and then Peter looks at Jesus, realizes he's God, knows all these stories, and what does he do? He throws himself down and says, get away from me, I'm a sinner. <laughs> what he's really thinking is like, why am I not dead right now? <laughs> why am I not dead right now? Because the idea of man having relationship with God or being able to actually interact with God was so far-fetched that only the holiest of the holy people could do it and only the holiest of the holy on certain holy days having gone through holy rituals could even have close access to God. What I want for tonight, like my whole goal for tonight is simply a fresh recognition and awe for we have relationship with God. <laughs> I'm skipping over my next couple points, like just because we have relationship with the God that for thousands of years, people could not even walk towards, walk into his presence or else they would die. And we talk about identity at the beginning and, and being, whole, being made holy. I was asking the Lord one time and I was thinking about that story of Uriah just touching the side of the ark and dying because the sinfulness of man touching the holiness of God killed the man. And I asked the Lord, I was like, Lord, like, if we're your dwelling place now, like, why don't we die? And I just, I remember, I remember I was walking in Old Town Greenwood and I heard the Lord say, well, I either really lowered my standards or you really are holy. There's only two options. You, I actually made you holy by my blood so that you can be my resting place, as holy as the holy of holies, or I really just changed and decided it wasn't possible and lowered my standards. I don't think it was the second one. Okay, so after the temple, obviously Israel rebels. The temple is burned down. We have Ezekiel in Ezekiel 47 prophesying about a temple of the future when the Messiah would come, and it says it describes all the things. There will be a river flowing from the temple to the east. We've heard all this before. And wherever the river touches, there's life, okay? And then out of that time, they're waiting for the Messiah. Jesus shows up, and all of a sudden, Jesus starts making these references that he is the temple 
of God. He even says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days as he's standing in the temple. Like obviously they, the priests were not gonna understand what he was saying at all. But all of a sudden he's saying that he is the temple of God. Think about this like in the Jewish culture of just everything that we've talked through in their history of thousands of years, this would be completely unheard of, completely unheard of. He also starts referencing how there would be rivers of living water flowing out of him just like the temples of old, just like the prophesied temple to come, just like the Garden of Eden. And even crazier, he says this in John 7, 37. He says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he said in reference to the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The rivers in the Garden of Eden, the depictions and all the carvings in the temple, the prophecies of the temple to come that would have rivers of flowing water, they all were shadows of what, would to come, of what was to come. And that was human beings being temples of God with the living water of the Holy Spirit flowing out of them, bubbling up and over. Jesus is saying that God is going to dwell in people. That by his blood, he creates Eden inside of each of us. That he allows us to walk into the holy of holies freely and unashamed. By his blood, we now have rivers of living water flowing out of each of us. It was a big deal that when Jesus died, the, the curtain was torn in two, right? We sang it in that first song tonight. You've torn the veil. Like that was the, that was the veil into the Holy of Holies. That was it being ripped in half and saying there now is no separation between God and man because of the blood of Jesus. Man, like if this doesn't get us like more thankful for what Jesus did, like I don't know, I don't know. And more so even than just us individually being temples of the Holy Spirit and of God himself. It says this in Ephesians 2, and it references this all throughout the New Testament scriptures. In 2.19, 2.22, one of our core verses, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. So us as a community are being built together to be the very dwelling place of God. And so when we say, like, man, it's good to be in the Lord's house today. It's good to be in God's temple right now. We are in God's temple right now because we are gathered in his name. That is not just Old Testament language to be like, man, we're going to the house of the Lord today. <laughs> we are because two of us are showing up at least. <laughs> so for Second Peter then says, now we are a royal priesthood. We are, we are the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham from the Abrahamic covenant of saying, I will, from your descendants, I will give you a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Peter is, is referencing an Old Testament text there. 
saying a royal priesthood, that our primary purpose, our goal, our calling in life is to be priests unto the Lord, to steward both the Eden that God has placed inside of each of us individually, to steward the Eden that God places in us corporately, and to watch rivers of living water flow out of us, personally and corporately. In Revelation, it says that we are a kingdom of priests who reign on the earth, multiple times. Let's go to Hebrews 13, 15. I think this describes us so well now. If we're talking about worship, if there's one New Testament book that talks about worship or ministering to the Lord more than anything else, it's the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 13 says, now through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice. Okay, so this is our priesthood calling. What kind of sacrifice? A sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. A sacrifice of praise to God, our priestly calling. Second part of our priestly calling. So we minister to the Lord. Second part is we minister to people from relationship with God. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So three quick points to make it practical. Number one, as a priest, a priest's primary ministry is to steward the dwelling place of God. So asking the question, is God, if God is actually walking with you in person, how does that change your behavior, your thoughts, and your motivation? If you can see him, if you're interacting with him all the time, if you are constantly walking around with the awareness that you are practicing his presence, that you are carrying the presence of God, if the very core of your heart, which has now been made holy, righteous, and pure, is now the holy of holies, how does that change your behavior, your thoughts, and your motivations? Then corporately, if God is with us right now, if we are the dwelling place of his presence, if we come together in worship and God himself actually shows up, the God who people did not have access to for thousands of years, and he shows up, how does that change how we do things? How does that change how we respond corporately? Secondly, priests live in complete dependence on God. Are we giving the Lord sacrifices consistently in our lives, specifically money and time? Are we offering up sacrifices that are pleasing to God, sacrifices, the sacrifice of praise to God every day? Are we not neglecting to do good and share what we have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God? Are we willing to take risks in obedience that leave zero power for us to defend or provide for ourselves? the priestly calling to model dependency on God. And number three, priests, so number one, a priest's primary ministry is to steward the dwelling place of God. Number two, a priest lives completely dependent on God. Number three, priest stewarding his presence results in cultural transformation every time. As we steward the, the Eden inside of us, as we steward the Eden of our community, there are rivers of living water that flow out of us. So am I growing in compassion for my neighbor? Am I releasing life wherever I go? Am I releasing righteousness, peace, and joy into my workplace, into my home, 
in my own life. And of course, the final reminder of John 15 of branches never try to produce fruit. So if you're not seeing righteousness, peace, and joy where you're working, it's not about trying to produce those things more. It's about being more aware that you're connected to the vine. It's being more aware of the garden inside of you and allowing the streams of the Holy Spirit to flow out of you naturally. And then we look forward to the future. Let's go to Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Almost done. Hi, Millie. Revelation 22, John's vision. It says, then the angel showed me the river of water of life, of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship with him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. There will be no need of lamp or light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Okay, this is, this is fascinating to me, that the leaves of the trees, the flowing of the Holy Spirit, is for the healing of nations, which means this temple is established before the nations are healed right? This is God's restoration plan of the earth. There's, um, there's so many different ways to view the end times, but I'm convinced of one thing, is that the Lord is going to restore the earth, right? There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, and his strategy for redeeming, restoring the earth is establishing a throne here on earth with rivers of living water flowing out from it, and with people, priests, all around the throne ministering to him and allowing the streams of living water to produce the healing of the nations. This is how God redeems the earth. In Ezekiel 47, it's the last place we'll go to. Really fascinating passage. So in Ezekiel 47, it talks about a, a temple being built. And there's so many different perspectives about uh, Ezekiel. You have people that say all the prophecies of Ezekiel are fulfilled in the person of Jesus and now the new covenant. I think there's validity to that. And then there's also the understanding that the prophecies of Ezekiel also are for the future of talking about a literal temple. But Ezekiel 47 describes a temple where rivers of living water are flowing out from under the temple where God is dwelling, that there's priests ministering to God all the time. And it says that the nations are healed through the rivers of living water. It's the same imagery of Revelation. And there's really, it's really interesting in, in, in Ezekiel because in verse 47, it divides the priests into two groups. It divides the priests into one group that says that their primary focus it said, that they, it said that they became compromised. It said that they didn't do everything they can to keep themselves holy and pure before the Lord. And it says that they gave in to the desires of the people. They still were allowed to be priests in this prophecy. They still are allowed to be priests, but they are sent to the outer courts to minister to the hearts of people. 
But it says that the priests that kept themselves pure before the Lord in motivation and in heart and didn't yield to the desires of people, they were allowed to minister, they are allowed to minister to the Lord's face himself. That they are allowed to come before him and to behold him themselves. And this may be a prophecy about, the, about literally in the future, and those could be roles, but I think that there's application here now as well of saying that, man, if our goal is to minister to him, to behold him, we will see him. <laughs> and I, I think it's really interesting of, it says that the priests that gave in to the desires of people that compromised, that were worried about what others were thinking about them, their reward was the blessing of the people they actually received quite a bit of outward focus, a lot of outward praise because they were the ones in front of the people and ministering to the people. And they were still priests. The Lord still said, you will be priests for me, but you'll be ministering to people. And then the one marking Ezekiel ends with the final phrase of saying the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which I think that it's multidimensional. I think it may refer to a city coming in the future, I also believe that it refers to each of us individually today. It says that the city of God will be known by one name. The Lord is there. And it's the name of their city. The name of the city. And it wouldn't it be cool if that was how people knew us individually. The Lord is there how people knew us as 420. Like, man, they, they probably worship a little too long and they're a little unorganized, but the Lord is there. If people looked at Indianapolis and said, like, man, maybe it's not perfect, but the Lord is there. We're out of time. Oh, Lord. Father, would our, our lives be marked with the phrase, the Lord is there? Just as Jeff talked about last week, Lord, would my life be marked? When people look at my life, would they not, <laughs> whatever they see, would they see one thing? Would it be that the Lord is there? The Lord is there. Lord, when people look at our community, would they see one thing? Would they see the Lord is there? The Lord is there. And God, we ask that in our city that you would raise up Indianapolis to be a city that when people look at Indianapolis, they say, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. And Father, would you teach us what it means to be priests unto you? Jesus, we thank you for your blood. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that we are your sons and daughters. We thank you that you've done all the hard work, that all the pressure is off, and that we get to love you in return. We thank you that as we abide in you, streams of living water flow out of us, Lord, to our families, to our neighbors, Father, to this community. And Holy Spirit, would you teach us to abide in you? And Lord, would you give us a fresh thankfulness, a fresh recognition of the privilege of knowing you? the privilege of walking around every single day, of carrying the presence, the Shekinah glory of God. Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Lord. I thank you for giving me a clean heart. I thank you for making me whole. I thank you, Father, for redeeming me to the very core. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for picking me as your dwelling place. Thank you for choosing me as your dwelling place. 
And Lord, would you do it here in our community? Would we be a dwelling place for you? Would 420, would Thursday nights, would our prayer times in the morning, God, would, as we come together, would it be a place that you look forward to showing up at? Would you look at our community and say, man, I love being there because I get to be the leader. I get to be the Lord. I get to be who I really am. Father, would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you direct us? And Lord, would you convict us personally and corporately of any area of our lives that we are not ministering to you? Just as Liz was saying during worship, God, any area of our lives, Lord, that we have exalted higher than you, would you bring conviction? Would you bring a fresh fear of the Lord in awe of who you are? Lord, we thank you for your presence. We honor you. We bless you. We thank you for the privilege of being priests before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen.